Welcome to the Ask Zach Show. I'm your host, Zach Childs. I've spent the last 30 years working in the music industry here in Nashville, Tennessee, during which I've done everything from touring with major artists like Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood to playing the nastiest dive bars or even the occasional wedding. This show is all about barreling down the rabbit hole on all things guitar and the music we love. We will cover the legendary players, gear insights, and even some interviews along the way. I hope you enjoy. To support the show, follow the links in the description to find out about my Patreon page. Or go to my store at AskZach.com to pick up a coffee mug or t-shirt. Now, let's dive in. Hello friends and welcome to Ask Zach. Today we are going to talk about the earliest foot pedal or effect design that was ever released for guitar players and it's the volume pedal. Um, this one is from the late 1980s but it the design goes all the way back to the 1930s and many manufacturers are making it even as far back as the mid-1930s. So we're going to talk a bit about the history. We're going to talk a bit about who I believe are the most important, the three most important players as far as influencing, influencing others to use the volume pedal. And then I'm going to give you some tips on how to shop for a volume pedal and things to watch out for. Because volume pedals are notorious for either tone sucking or tone enhancing and sometimes not so wonderful ways. So we are going to uh, talk about that. So while you're thinking about it, we'll go down in the corner and hit subscribe if you've been enjoying the show. If you've been watching and you've already subscribed, then I appreciate you supporting the show. There's a number of different ways. There's Patreon, which there's a link in the description for that. Also, there's a link to askzack.com where you can find merch like this, it's a sickness shirt. Also, there's good old tip jar information. All right, let's dive in. So the volume pedal uh, was uh, you know, pretty much offered by most of the major guitar manufacturers by the mid-1930s, definitely by 1937. You have companies like Gibson and Rickenbacker and others, basically all of the companies that were making electric guitars, guitars with pickups on them, and especially ones that were also making lap steels, were selling volume pedals. Uh, I need to note DeArmond, even though DeArmond wasn't a, uh, of course, a guitar manufacturer, they were kind of at the forefront of accessories, and of course they were producing the uh, you know, add-on, they were had the first add-on pickup that you could put on your acoustic instrument, whether arch top or a round hole, with the uh, the sliding one or the round hole, you know, sound hole pickup. 
and they introduced their own uh, volume pedal in around 1939, 1940, pre-World War II. And yeah, the uh, the was probably the most used and the most accessible. And, you know, that's what a lot of people used. And even Fender sold the Diarmond pickup through their catalog until they came out with their own volume pedal design in 1954, which of course was a nice chrome unit. And uh, then other companies started, you know, kind of getting in on the game. Bigsby made a, a volume pedal, as did Showbud and uh, a number of other companies. It, uh, it really was mainly used by lap steel, pedal steel, uh, or even non-pedal you know, non steel, you know, guys that had multiple necks but no pedals. That was the main customer for these things. One of the rare exceptions would be Junior Bernard, who played you know, electric guitar with uh, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys in the, 19, in the late 1940s. And he used a volume pedal not for an effect or expression, but he used it so that he could get to soloing volume really quickly. So apparently uh, Bob Wills, who was a fiddle player, he would just point with his fiddle bow to whoever who was gonna solo next, and you had to be uh, you know, at soloing volume right away. And so instead of having to, you know, he had an Epiphone Emperor arch top and it had one of the Diarmond add-on, you know, pickups. It was on the little sliding metal pieces, what they call the monkey on a stick design. And the, of course, the add-on volume and tone controls were away from it, and uh, he couldn't get to them fast enough. And so he bought a volume pedal, and so he was using a volume pedal just to get to soloing volume uh, quickly in the uh, in the mid to late 1940s. Oh. Uh, it's not until you get into the 60s that you really start seeing guitar players use them. And some of the earliest guys would be uh, Reggie Young. Reggie Young was using a volume pedal as far back as 1964. In my interview with Reggie before he passed away, he told me about uh, his rig that he used when he was opening for the Beatles in 1964 with the Bill Black Combo. It was a Gibson ES-345 with the Veritone removed, because uh, even then people knew that it was a tone sucker, and a Standell amplifier that had a single 15 JBL speaker in it, and he had a volume pedal, and that was his rig that he used, and he continued to, to use a, uh, a volume pedal, and he gets more influential as uh, time goes on. Another early volume pedal using guitarist would be uh, Phil Baugh, who played on some of the early Merle Haggard cuts. So he played on Swing and Doors. And if you listen carefully to the intro, you can hear that Phil Baugh is using a volume pedal and he uses it to create some kind of quasi steel guitar effects. The, uh, the volume pedal really catches on with guitarists due to a, uh, uh, two players in the 70s. One is Reggie Young, of course I've already mentioned, and he played on a really important cut called uh, Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues. That was a tune by Danny O'Keefe, and the song was a big hit, and I, in fact, am in, you know, kind of referencing that in the, uh, in the opening licks that I played. Those are licks from Good Time Charlie's Got the Blues. 
And those were done, of course, with a volume pedal. And when that was cut in Memphis, and shortly after that, uh, Reggie moved to Nashville, and he was you know, hired on a lot of sessions because of that sound, that volume swell sound. So he's kind of the reason that uh, Nashville you know, players started using uh, volume pedals. It was mainly because of Reggie. Uh, however, out in LA, the, uh, the player that really put the volume pedal on the map was Larry Carlton. Now, uh, Reggie learned about using a volume pedal from a pedal steel player, John Huey, who is famous for having played with Conway Twitty and Vince Gill in their, uh, kind of at the height of both of their careers. Uh, old, uh, old Larry found out about the, uh, the, you know, volume pedal, uh, also playing with a pedal steel player, but this was Buddy Emmons. So during the time when Buddy Emmons was living out in Los Angeles in the late 60s, early early 70s, uh, Larry played a session with him, was, really liked the sound that he got and the way he used a volume pedal on the pedal steel. And he got uh, he told Buddy that he wanted one and Buddy went and got him a Showbud volume pedal. And that's what... Larry used on all sorts of recordings through the years, all those things with the uh, with the Crusaders and Joni Mitchell and uh, you know Steely Dan and his solo records on and on and on. Uh, I actually had the chance to look at two of uh, Larry's Showbud volume pedals, and they had uh, they had Dumble buffers put in them. So they had an extra tuner jack and they had uh, buffers in both of them. So I thought that was very interesting, uh, you know, mod. And uh, yeah, so with the work of Reggie Young in Nashville and the work of Larry Carlton out in L.A. in the 70s, the, uh, the volume pedal began to become more of a usual kit for guitar players and there began to be more demand. And the company that probably stepped up the most to, um, you know, kind of get volume pedals out there would be Ernie Ball. So Ernie Ball came out with this, well, a variation of this pedal in 1975. And Ernie Ball, besides being a string manufacturer, well, at first they were just buying strings made by another company. But besides being a, uh, a string manufacturer, they were also a, uh, you know, a manufacturer or distributor of all sorts of accessories. So they had lesson books, chord books, amp corners, amp casters, handles, coily cords, all sorts of things. And uh, they, uh, they saw the demand for volume pedals and began producing this design. And... Uh, this is not a 75. This is my volume pedal that I bought in around 89 or 90. And uh, you can see it has just the, the two jacks on the side. And uh, you can see it's, you know, string and uh, pot design. So this is one of the main designs of, of the simple, you know, passive vintage volume pedals is usually they have a simple pot and a string, and some of them have a, uh, you know, the design you'd see like on a, on a vintage wah, where it has a pot that has teeth on it, and then there's the, the top part of the pedal that has a, a shaft that has teeth on it, and that moves the pot back and forth. So that's, uh, those are the kind of the two designs that you see the most of. 
uh, on old volume pedals. Uh, I guess we'll just go ahead and mention the next cat that really influenced uh, the, you know, the use of the volume pedal and, and helped popularize it, and that's uh, Mark Knopfler. So Mark, of course, greatly popularized the, the Stratocaster you know, in, the, in the 1970s and the, uh, you know, the number four position, and also helped popularize the volume pedal. Early on, he used an active Morley pedal you know, on the first couple records, and then he began using an Ernie Ball uh, falling pedal. And that's what he was using by the time he did uh, like uh, Brothers in Arms, which is very famous for its use of the volume pedal and a Les Paul and a distorted tone, very beautiful work. So by this point, you know, by the mid 1980s, it's pretty, pretty normal to see a volume pedal on on pedal boards or even in you know rack systems so bob bradshaw of course was making the you know crazy racks and usually there would be a a switching system and next to the you know switcher would be usually a you know boss volume pedal which is about the this size but then extended a little further and would have a minimum volume control and uh, and that was Kind of what you saw on the uh, on the LA you know racks, you tended to see these uh, you know Boss volume pedals throughout the 80s. Into the uh, into the 90s, and with the uh, you know pedal boards coming back into fashion and starting to see fancy pedal boards built by companies like TechStar or Bradshaw or others in LA and and Nashville, you really start seeing. The Ernie Ball coming on strong again, and you uh, you see them on all sorts of uh, pedal boards, and uh, you know to this day, if you look at any session player's board, you're going to see a volume pedal. I think you know probably the one that you see the most now on Nashville boards is like this Dunlop. Uh, this is the Volume X, but various versions of this. And uh, that's what you see on a lot of guys' boards now. It's a it's a good design. It has a steel band instead of a string. I have actually broken one of the steel bands before. Uh, I don't know if that has to do with my size 14 foot or what, but uh, of course they they took care of it and and fixed it. But uh, yeah, this this is a good design. So, uh, yeah. So volume pedal has really become kind of part of the rig. And even guys like Steve Lukather who's used a volume pedal, Tim Pierce uses a volume pedal, and Tim Pierce has talked about using a volume pedal as a noise gate. And so that way he can use a single coil pickup guitar with a lot of gain and have a volume pedal, of course, after the gain effects in the guitar. And so that way he can pull back the volume pedal so that you don't hear any of that until the song begins. So you don't get in trouble with a producer or engineer, and I've heard Steve Lukather talk about that in interviews in print back in the 1980s about using a volume pedal in such a way. Uh, yeah, let's talk a bit about shopping for a volume pedal or just things to know about volume pedals. Really, volume pedals tend to be in two categories, either active or passive, and a passive volume pedal of course, is going to be some type of design that usually has a pot and a string or some other type of actuator. That's going to be like a, a Showbud, a Bigsby, a, a Simple Goodriches, all those others. Uh, you know, that, that's your passive design. Even this 
This Dunlop is a passive volume pedal. It has a pot in there and uses a steel band. Um, this little uh, boss that I have that I throw in a bag, this is the FV30H. Um, it, uh, it also has a, a little pot in there and it's, it's passive. Your active ones are going to have some type of buffer in them. And, uh, and that's to try to help with tone suckage. And that's just part of a problem with volume pedals. So, you know, because you've added another, you know, you've added more wiring and you've added a pot, uh, there can be some tone suckage, especially if you don't have some type of buffered pedal in front of it. And also, if a volume pedal is not calibrated properly, well, you know, a passive one, well, then you won't get the full rotation of the pot, which means you're not getting, you're losing volume and you're losing tone from it. And a good way to test that is to just get a, a good old fashioned true bypass looper. So this is just one that Dana down at True Tone made for me. And so it just has an in and out and a send and return. And so what you would do is you could take this with you, you know, to a shop and, uh, you know, you, of course you have your, your in from your guitar out to your amp, and then you put the, uh, the volume pedal in there and you put it in the toe position you know, all the way on. And then you can just click this back and forth and you can see if it's messing with your tone, see if it's letting all of the signal pass or not. Some of them are not calibrated properly and some of them are just bad designs. So that's a good way. And you can also do that with active pedals because active volume pedals have circuitry and a buffer and sometimes they can enhance things in strange ways. And that's just the problem with, you know, having another stage of amplification, which is what a buffer is. And so not all buffers are created equal and it's really hard to make one that's flat. Uh, so usually buffers tend to be, have certain happy areas where they tend to kind of hype certain frequencies more than others. And uh, I don't think any of them are terrible. Also, sometimes they will change the feel, the way the guitar feels. Uh, I know that sounds like a strange thing, but it's like, you know, when you're, there's a connectiveness between you, your instrument and the amp. And sometimes certain pedals and certain amplification stages can do interesting things. And I know that's going down the, uh, the rabbit trail, but, uh, it's a sickness. Okay, so other things to look for in volume pedals is usually the taper is not super smooth, especially on the pot, you know, the, the passive versions that have a pot in there. And so there'll be certain areas of the throw where you're gonna get more volume change than others. And that's just kind of part of it. And so that's part of going out and trying a lot of volume pedals. The most even ones tend to be the active ones that are not using a pot. So they have, there's ones that use, uh, you know, you know, light technology or magnetic technology like the Laylee and others. And those are all, you know, really, really good designs. I've noticed that some of them have little jumps. So, and, and this is something to watch for. And that's where, if you go to the, the heel position off and then you go forward, 
Some of them feel like they don't go zero to one. It's almost like they go straight from zero to two. And so it's it seems almost like a hiccup. So that's something I watch out for. And uh, again, that's just something where you're gonna get the volume pedals out and you're just gonna you know, try them out and see see what works for you. I think the uh, the uh, true bypass thing is is a really good tell right away to see if it's hyping your signal or uh, or sucking your signal as it were. So uh, if you can't tell, I'm not a huge fan of the volume pedal. So I like the uh, the effect of it. I know it's it's super useful. It's incredibly useful for for studio players. You know, because they're constantly having to change their level while they're playing and they can't reach down and touch their volume control. So I get it. I understand why it's important. Um, I try to not use one. And uh, when I do use one, I tend to use one before my pedals, which is not even the best way to use it. Because really, the best place to put a volume pedal is after your gain effects and before your time-based effects. So that way you can do swells and then, of course, you get... Um, you know, the, uh, the delays trailing off. Another reason why I don't really love using a volume pedal is because it got to be such a thing. And it, it really got to be a big thing in the 90s where, you know, it seems like guitar players were being asked to sound like keyboards. And this continues to this day, you know, with using a lot of delay, a lot of verb, and swelling these chords and things. And it's kind of like, why don't you just have a keyboard player do that? But it, uh, I think it really got its rise during the, uh, during the 90s, during the singer-songwriter phase, when it was kind of like, and I did it myself, not on you know, records, but you know, I backed up these you know, singer-songwriters, and, and, and that was one of the best things to do. You know, at uh, kind of these coffee house gigs was, you know, they were, you know, finger picking on acoustic guitar and singing, and then you could sustain these chords behind them and it helped fill things out and it, and it sounded good. But, uh, yeah, part of it is that the whole swell thing has been, has been done a lot. It's been done a whole lot. So, uh, I don't do as much volume pedal work unless it's just necessary, but I still like it. I still love the work of Larry Carlton and Reggie Young and Knopfler and all the other guys that have helped popularize the effect. So there you have it. There's my spiel on the volume pedal. And, uh, and now it's time for our book nook segment. I just need to set this down and grab my book. So, you know, I'm bad about suggesting out of print books. And, uh, that's because a lot of the books I have on my bookshelf are out of print, but these things are definitely out there and can be found. And I think they're worth searching out and know that I'm not, you know, selling anything or profiting in any way from recommending these books because there's no way to do so. So this is a favorite book of mine. And this is from a series that guitar player used to do. And I wish they would continue. They used to do book, uh, books that were collections of interviews. And so they would pick their best interviews from certain eras and they would put these books together. So this one is called Country Musicians. And so this one uh, utilizes interviews from both guitar player and from their sister publication that's 
you know, long gone called frets, which was more acoustic instruments. And this features you know, interviews with, with everyone from Reggie Young and Jimmy Weibel to, uh, you know, Bill Monroe and Ricky Skaggs and Waylon Jennings and Albert Lee and James Burton. And this is a, a wonderful collection. Chet Atkins, Jethro Burns, uh, Mother Maybell, Roy Clark, Floyd Kramer, you know, Lester Flatt, Hank Garland, Emmylou Harris, Doug Kershaw, on and on and on, Sam McGee. This is a wonderful, wonderful book, and it's, it's basically a collection where if you wanted to find all these interviews in these magazines, you'd have to spend, you know, more than $100, you know, probably have to spend, you know, $200 trying to track down all the, uh, the original magazines that had these interviews. So these are out there. This is called Country Musicians, and uh, it was released in 1987. And it's a great book. I learned so much from this, and this has been a great reference for me. Uh, and and most of these are not online. These are these are not interviews that you can find online somewhere. So this is very much worth tracking down. Of course, I always suggest that you check out you know eBay and uh, anywhere that you uh, would look for uh, old, older books. And uh, it's it's worth tracking down. And I you know I'd pay twenty or thirty dollars for it or more. It's, it's worth it. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for watching today. I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Ask Zach podcast. If you want to dive deeper, check out my website, askzach.com, to find more articles and further info on each episode. And remember, it is the support from you, the listener, that keeps the show going. Thank you, friends.